You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is an interview of David Pertle, the head of enterprise engagement at Chargebacks 911. He is interviewed by Scott Pinsker. Welcome to Thought Leadership in the FinTech Revolution, brought to you by the ungodly brilliant people at Chargebacks 911. I am Scott David Pinsker, and I'll be your pilot while we take a trek down the FinTech wormhole. For today's big show, we will be joined by David Pertle, the VP of Enterprise Engagement at Chargebacks 911. David, welcome to the program. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you, David, and, and you know, I'm, I'm looking at you right now through the video, and I want to let you know, David, that I can read people like a book, and now I'm going to read you. Clearly, David, you're a confident guy, you're sharp, you're quick on your feet, you're outgoing, you're worldly, therefore, I can only deduce as a fact that you're a big town kind of guy, like, uh, like you grew up in LA, or New York, or Chicago, or Philadelphia, I'm definitely getting a Johnny Hollywood, Joe Broadway kind of urbanite vibe from you, right? Uh, wrong. <laughs> oh, no. Where yep. did you grow up? Actually, I grew up uh, a little west of Nashville in a little tiny town called Waverly, Tennessee. So tried tremendously hard to, to drop my country accent. Uh, some say <laughs> I don't have it, but yeah, from a very small town. Yeah. What was it like growing up in little town America? Well, little town America <laughs> is like any other little town America. You know all your neighbors. You know, everyone you went to high school with, there was no strangers. I think my high school class was like maybe 125 people, and that was three cities. So uh, you knew everyone. Oh, wow. Now, did it ever feel like limiting or confining, you know, everyone knowing everything about you and, and not being able to, to really reinvent who you are? Uh, yes and no. So uh, there's a comforting factor to to kind of knowing everyone's business uh, and everything that's going on, uh, you, you have a comfort level, but also it's, it's also limiting, a very small town. Um, you know, you have dreams and aspirations that can be limited to just a small square footage of space. So um, I would say both. Hmm. You know, politically and, and, you know, even poetically, we like to talk real favorably about, you know, small town values. And, and usually, you know, we think about how you're more kind to people and you have a, maybe a heightened notion of, of morality and fair play. Do, do you think you could have become the man that you are today if you grew up in, in a New York environment or an L.A. environment? Like, do you, do you think rural people really do view the world differently? Um, I think they do. I think they have no choice, actually. So growing up in a small town, unfortunately, you can't get away with anything. So your morals have to be on point. Um, and I grew up, you know, with a very tight knit family, a very large family surrounded by hundreds of acres of just families. So, um, you know, I grew up watching my parents helping people. Um, they weren't overly fortunate themselves, but I've kind of always had that instilled with me. Um, through my parents and watching, you know, how they were able to help other people. So um, I don't think that I could have been, you know, the person I am today with the values I hold and, um, you know, inspirational uh, aspects of my life without growing up in such a small town. Well, uh, when, when you have a mother and father who really care about you and are trying to guide you and have you grow up into, you know, the kind of human who, who can help other people and, and not only think me first, but, but think of other people, you know, I, that, that can really be a beautiful thing. And, and it kind of leads me to, to a little bit of a question that I know a little bit about you, David, so I'm kind of leading you into here. Um, with, with your mom and dad and, and them shaping you the way you are, I, I know that when you're in from the country, when you're from a small town, that to live off the land, you often have to build off the land. Could, could you tell me who built your childhood home? Yeah, so actually my parents and I built my childhood home, um, actually second home to be quite honest. We did it around the age of 13, which later in life gave me my passion. But um, yeah, there it was about 3,000 square foot house. We built the foundation. We laid the block. We nailed and nailed and hammered every nail in there, uh, did the drywall flooring. I mean, put the roof on. So, um, you know, created a safe space. 
how did how did they know what to do? Um, you know, you kind of just figure it out. Um, my dad's always been in it. Uh, he's always been doing that type of work, construction, helping other people out on projects. So kind of just grew into it um, like I did. So trial and error. Of, <laughs> see, I, I, being that, like I'm not mechanically inclined, I, I get, you know, baffled by like, you know, like, like overnight instructions and stuff. Like to me, it's almost unfathomable that you can build a home with, with the wiring and the plumbing. And I mean, it... <laughs> that's not like a little thing. And, and if you were to botch it, you know, I mean, the material, it costs a lot of money. And, and I'm sure if, if you don't have a lot, you know, any kind of expenditure that can drain your bank account, you got to be a little leery of. I, I'm just, you know, I, I'm a little bit in awe and, and kind of intimidated by the courage it would take to build your own home. Yeah. I mean, you have to be careful planning. Um, it's almost like building a business, you know, <laughs> so you lay the foundation, you, Put in the effort you <laughs> uh, build it in, in with the mind of keeping it protected uh, is the way I look at building a business and, and same with the house so you're building your safe space and what it's just like you said it's very intimidating if you don't know what you're doing um, and it could all come crashing down as well as you know financially so it's a pretty big undertaking so looking up to my parents for taking that on and um, building it with them and then seeing the reward that comes with that um, was very inspiring for what I continued to do in life. Right, and and not only the reward that that you got to have with the beautiful new home with your mom and dad there and, and growing up in it, but but didn't, didn't your home your your parents work to 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 create homes and to flip homes for other people too? Yeah, they still do it today, actually. So uh, I kind of uh, continued that on for them. They got out of it, but. Um, they got back into it once I picked up my passion and started doing it full time when I lived in Nashville. So I did escape the small town to hmm. move to Nashville, Tennessee, um, and then enjoyed the big city life for a little bit. Um, followed my dreams of being creative, got my art degree, uh, design work, which for me is just solving people's problems. Um, also, that that helpful aspect of life uh, is in there as well. But yeah, I mean, I watched them do it. Um, they still do it today. My dad calls himself a real estate investor slash flipper. But what really <laughs> happens is he um, buys homes that are in uh, despair and then he fixes them up. And then nine times out of 10, he will find someone that needs a house, uh, needs a place to live. And then they will end up renting it from him pretty much at cost. So he's not a flipper. Don't let him lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, that's still really cool, man. And, you know, colloquially, colloquially, we, we, we often claim that, you know, I'm sure you've heard the adage, home is where the heart is. And, and, you know, I truly believe in that because until we forge an emotional connection with our habitat, it, it won't ever feel like a real home. And, and David, I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you had a, like a really bad roommate and you go home at night and it, it felt weird going in there. Like you're, you're in a building and you got stuff there, but it's not really your home. Too much angry, too, too much anger, too much weird conflict going on. It, you know, it, it just was a building, you know, not a real home. And, and how did it feel like when you would, when you would watch like a dilapidated structure kind of come to life and, and, and then you would have a family move into it. Maybe they have children, maybe they've got a dog, maybe they have a cat and, you know, suddenly they got stuff growing in the garden and, and they, you know, and they made the transformation from, you know, a bunch of broken down bricks and, and wood into a, a home in every true meaning of the word. Yeah, it feels good. I mean, taking on that responsibility is very intimidating, but doing it right and knowing that someone's going to get, a life out of it that is not so worrisome if they were moving into a home that otherwise was needing work or might, you know, cave in on them, etc. Uh, you know, it, feel, it feels great to be able to put in the hard work and then have the fruits of your labor be enjoyed by other people. Do you have a favorite home or favorite family that, uh, that you're able to provide a home for? I don't. It's kind of like artwork, uh, to be honest with you. I just, <laughs> I do it. It gets my creativity out. It gets, you know, it fulfills the need that I need and then I move on. So I don't really get attached to any of the, the houses or any of the work that I do. It's just a creative outlet and, you know, a thing in my life that tries to get accomplished <laughs> and then, you know, you just move on to the next one. So 
I don't really no, have you, you, you don't have like that pride of ownership or that kind of like lingering, annoying loyalty where you're like, I built that thing. I don't, I don't want other people to move in here. I built it. It's mine. <laughs> I don't. I actually just want to want to pass it on, let someone else enjoy it. Uh, there's always, always that little bit of nostalgia when, you know, you lived in a city for so long and then you get to pass all the houses that you've made, you know, whole again. Um, and then seeing the families, you know, kind of just live their lives. So a little bit of nostalgia, but definitely do not need to keep any of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, the first uh, show that we did for, for um, the program here, we did with Gary Cardone. And Gary mentioned that, you know, that he's kind of wired that way where you know, he loved to paint, he'll love to create, he'll love to, you know, begin with a, a fresh blank canvas and try to create a brand new work of art that people hadn't contemplated before. And then you're done, you know, you kind of move on. And, and I, for, for Gary, I kind of got the vibe. It might be a little bit of boredom, you know, like I built it, I created it. I followed my vision. Beautiful. Now, where do I go? And I, I think there are people that are kind of hot hardwired that way where they kind of like, they like having one project after another that they can really, you know, figure out where it went wrong and how to make it better and how you can make a linear improvement or an incremental gain. And eventually you have a beautiful product at the end of it. But a lot of times these people, they don't want to watch it through all the way. They kind of like to get it going and then watch it carry over with their own momentum. Yeah, I mean, there's burdens to being creative. <laughs> Your mind never stops. Continually going. And, and you know, I, I like how you talked about when you were an entrepreneur, when you took the plunge in Nashville. I also like how you call Nashville a big city. I, I do like that, too. Uh, I, I love how you refer to it as being a problem solver. Could you elaborate a little bit by what you meant by that? Yeah. So, I mean, really, my passion is design. It could be really anything. Um, and design means problem solving to me. I mean, growing up the way I did, helping, uh, you know, out later in life, watching my parents do that, um, being presented with a problem and then solving that problem through design is my passion. Um, so, you know, wait, what was the question? Cut this out, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries, man. No, we're talking about how, you're, how you solve a problem. And, and really, when you're an entrepreneur, you know, there's a problem in the world and you figure out a way around it. You figure out a way to cut that Gordian knot and hopefully make the world a little bit better for other people. Yeah, I mean, I found my passion, which is design. Uh, through growing up in a very small town, watching my parents do what they did, help people out, I naturally just grew into it. Uh, design to me is solving problems. You're presented with a problem, whether it's an ugly bathroom or, you know, an ugly yard or they need uh, help with a roof. Like it, it's a problem. So your job uh, as a designer or, or doing remodel or rehab work is to solve that problem. So um, that isn't essentially helping out. And through that, um, you know, me helping out, I found my passion in design. So um, I actually got into it out of I wouldn't say necessity, but out of an urge that I couldn't ignore. Um, I was working for a company called MDON, which I think now is called Exchange, but I worked for them for about eight years. They're much like chargebacks. It's a very um, regulated process. They do medical data transfer. So claims, eligibility, et cetera, statements. Um, it's a very regulated process. It's a very complex problem and process to be involved with, but I was working for them. Um, and I was actually getting into my first home at the age of 22. First one I bought, remodeling it. Of course, I bought the worst one in the neighborhood, hmm. <laughs> um, the stinkiest house. My mom just could not believe it. But, um, you know, I got into that and I was doing that work. And then people at work started, you know, asking me for updates, what's going on. And then, um, you know, I, I actually took the plunge years later to go ahead and get my degree in design work towards that, uh, residential planning, et cetera. And then I got into it because people were being screwed over by their contractors. So um, I was watching these people and, you know, their bathroom would get ripped apart and then not fixed for two months or their kitchen that they just spent $30,000 on took six months to complete, or they just couldn't find help uh, with people they trusted. So I actually just kind of you know, filled the void there. Uh, I got into it uh, because I saw a need. Of course, me being the person I, I grew up to be, um, looking towards people that needed help, um, I naturally just, you know, kind of dove into it. Um, and then eventually quit my job at MGON, um, 
to do it full time. And I did that for about four to five years before, you know, moving to Florida and finding chargebacks 911. So, um, yeah, I kind of just fell into it. Really cool. So like I'd be in Nashville, I, I have a home and I'm unhappy with it. I got an ugly home or I have an inefficient home or I've got like an awkward, you know, room opening over here and, and I could tap you on the shoulder and you could, you could make the ugly beautiful and you can make the inefficient work better. Yeah. And well, not today. What, <laughs> Don't call me today, but <laughs> yeah, used to. <laughs> no, the weekend is coming up, David. I don't know what you're complaining about. I, uh, <laughs> it, were, how did how did you like what did you learn by having a company that you controlled for half a decade where you're directly accountable to the most intimate intimate expression that people really have I mean you know their home their bedroom I mean it doesn't get a lot more intimate than that and and the faith and trust that people would have to invite you in there particularly if they're already leery of you know contractor issue or or you know the guy you know finishing the kitchen halfway and then vanishing out of the blue and you know, with, with all the horror stories that you hear, how were you able to, to to communicate to people in an effective way to where they were confident in you? They, they knew that if they hitched their fortune and their home and their dream to your ability to think creatively, they knew they'd get a good product. They knew they'd be happy. How in the world did you communicate that? Uh, transparency. So, I mean, it's just like, and you know, now that I think of it, that's probably why I am so... Um, good. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to say good at the role that I fill for chargebacks 911 is because I get to be so tr transparent. I get to solve problems. I get to be uh, strategic with companies. You know, they come to me a lot of times with a nightmare and I get to walk them through that uh, with experience. So really, you know, how I got to the point of, you know, building up a clientele is just through being just completely transparent, trustworthy, um, and having a track record to where when they did talk to me, I just have this natural ability to um, lay it all out there and be open and honest about everything. And that's even with the bad things. I mean, it's not all pretty. Um, you're going to get very dirty. Your house is going to be a mess uh, for a little bit, but it's all, you know, uh, and I have a good reward at the end of the end of the day. So I think that's the exact same approach I take with chargebacks 911 in my, in my role here is, you know, looking towards companies that need help, figuring out, you know, what's your current strategy, what's your problem, what are you experiencing that you'd like to fix, kind of understanding uh, their need, and then approaching it with, uh, you know, tools and solutions that we, that we have available that work. Um, and likewise, you know, chargebacks 911, been doing this for a decade now, um, we have a good track record, and it's not, all, you know, flowers and sunshine. It's, it's ugly, you know, especially if a company comes to us late in the game and is on the verge of, you know, their house, for lack of better words, caving in. Um, we need to start, you know, fixing that foundation and we need to start looking at operational aspects. We need to start looking at, you know, what they did in the past to contribute to their, to the problem um, now. So, um, yeah, I guess I've always done the same thing in life, whether it's been with chargebacks or building a house or, you know, working in um, uh, working in electronic data transfer. So interesting to make the connections. Yeah. It, sometimes when you like, you know, you're, you're on your journey in life and you're flying and you're moving and you've got work to do and you're jumping from one meeting to another and, you know, you don't really have an opportunity to kick back and contemplate about, about the journey that you've been on. And, you know, I, and what I really enjoy about talking, you know, to, to people like you, David, is that you, you get an opportunity to kind of do a deep dive and, and really reflect a little bit. And, and, you know, one, one thought that I have, you know, going, taking the bridge from, from helping people at the home to helping people at chargebacks 911 is what role you really, you, you felt would be right or appropriate for you. And, and what I mean by that, I'm, I'm a lawyer by education and I do PR for a living. And they're, they're, for the legal model and for the PR model, you have, you have a different approach that you can do. One of them is kind of the grandfather approach where you're coming to me with a problem. I'm going to be grandfatherly to you and put my arm around your, your back and, and walk you through it and give you the benefit of my wisdom and help you along the way. But then you have another point of view where, hey, man, you're hiring a tool, not like a pejorative tool, but like, like a toolkit. You're, you're, you, you, want, you want an outcome. And if you're hiring me to do PR for you, it doesn't matter if I agree with you or if I don't agree with you. You've got the profit model. You've got the paycheck. And I'm here to do work for you. And I'm going to do the work for you, whether I believe in it or not. When, when you're dealing with 
a work of art like a home and, and that marriage of form and function, which would have to incorporate beauty and beauty by definition, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, David. What, what I find beautiful, you might find abhorrent and, and vice versa. And I'm sure you walked into a home before and you're like, oh God, how do people live like that? And, and you know, but they're apparently really happy. What, what role did you feel you had when you were helping people find a house that would eventually be their home and what role do you feel you have that you can extrapolate from that for chargebacks 911 well i think it doesn't matter at the end of the day what i want or what chargebacks 911 wants or you know anything or anybody else in life it, it's really just about the the customer or the client uh, that you're working with, uh, whether it's a design issue with a house or it's a, a flaw in their business or whatever. I mean, you're really just looking at the situation and then you are meeting their end goal. So that's why we always go through the phase of, hey, if you could wave a wand with your business or if you could wave a wand with your kitchen, what do you see or what is the end goal and result that you want? And then my job uh, both in design and at chargebacks 911 is to find out how to get there. So whether that's applying certain tools, whether that's applying certain solutions, strategies, uh, you know, we, we look at it all and then, you know, we, fi we find the end result that fits the client's need. Okay. Let me, let me think about that, David, what, what you're telling me then, whether you're not, you're, you're building a home or repairing a home or beautifying a home, or if you're helping a, a beleaguered merchant who got beat up through, through the unfair chargeback system and got ripped off and, and defrauded and all the horrible things that happen, what you're really doing is you're kind of building a roadmap where you're like, okay, right now you're here. Eventually you want to be over there. I'm going to build for you a roadmap that we can both follow that'll get you from point A to point B as efficiently and effectively as possible. And, and it'll be the journey that will get you to where you want to be, where you can either be profitable or happy or, or in a better place. It's my job to, to, to be the navigator for you. Is that the, the role that you kind of envision? Yeah, exactly. And we're going to try to dodge those potholes <laughs> and those trees that have fallen because of storms. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's our goal at Chargebacks 911. We, we're going to navigate you towards a better situation. That's true. I'm sure it can be a, a choppy navigation with a lot of pitfalls and you know, a lot of danger lurking around every corner, man. It's, uh, you know, the, the World Wide Web right now. People make the comparison about the Wild West and the cowboy days and all that. But, you know, there's more than a little bit of truth to it that, you know, and unfortunately in, in the cowboy movie, you, you sit with your back by the wall so we can shoot you in the back of the head. If you're moving product online, if you're, you know, you got a, a company up that that's available internationally 24 hours a day, you can't hide. You, you can't, you know, you, you can't put your hands over your, your eyes and pretend that it didn't happen. If people are going to take advantage of you, you have to be protected. You know, you, you, you don't have the opportunity and you don't have the luxury to ignore it. Yeah. Or your house will fall down. So, and then you yeah, know. and I love that analogy, by the <laughs> way, man. Because like only like a decade ago, like it kind of ended maybe a decade ago, and things are a little bit different now with the with the demographic shift and, and different generations coming up. But for a really long time, you know, when people talked about the American dream, they were always talking about home ownership. You know, you need to own your own home to be a real American. But now, you know, the whole world's moving online. We kind of have a new American dream where, you know, it wouldn't really be about your own home. I don't think Elon Musk even has a home. I think he just kind of is a vagabond moving from back and forth. But, but the new American dream, you got to own your own company, you know, to take control of your fate and uh, all the rat pack, you know, to, to do it your way. And, and, you need a foundation though, right? I mean, for a home or a company, you need a foundation, you need form and function, you, you need a roof over your head, you, you need stability. Um, the, the methodical approach of building a home and the methodical approach of protecting a company, what kind of parallels do you find between the two? Um, I think a lot of people get into doing business and they forget to protect what, what they you know put all their effort into. Uh, they're focused on customer acquisition, they're focused on you know getting the product, they're focused on uh, fulfilling orders, they're focused on uh, um, need to happen at, to, to get revenue at the end of the day. So, you know, the, the end goal there is to own that company and then reap the benefits, which is getting the revenue out of it. Um, I think that's where most people start is, hey, I have a great idea. 
Um, I'm looking at, you know, a product that I think I could sell. I'm looking at, uh, you know, a solution or software that I can build to market to people. I, I, I'm focused on a need here or I'm focused on a, a gap in, in the ecosphere of whatever, you know, vertical, vertical they're in, but then they're never thinking about, okay, what could go wrong? Like, because they don't know what they don't know. And I think that's a very interesting thing to think about is, you know, people build houses, but if, if no one ever put a roof on a house, that would be very odd. And that's how right. I look at it now working for Chargebacks 911 is when I first met Monica, um, it, it's kind of an interesting story. So when I moved to Florida, you know, I moved here because of sunshine. I moved here because of good weather. I moved here because I needed a change um, from that quote unquote small city. Um, and I, I just needed a change of pace. And I was fortunate enough to come here um, on a very successful um you know, stint in Nashville and, and not needing to find something that I can just, you know, um, settle with as far as a career goes. And I wanted to get into something new um, because I, I can't just bring my clientele with me. So I kind of was forced to start over. And um, it, it, it was an interesting thing because I was, uh, uh, you know, applying with different companies and trying to find the right fit. And, you know, people were wanting to hire me and I just, it didn't feel, it didn't feel right. So um, I started uh, working for a company here and uh, doing their operation side of this uh, very large remodel and uh, building contractor. And then, um, you know, it just it just wasn't fulfilling my needs. So I started looking elsewhere um, and I applied for just tons and tons of jobs. Right. Um, and then I don't even remember applying for chargebacks 911. Uh, I had never even heard of a chargeback at the time but I got an email from this lady named Monica. And uh, it's funny to think, you know, this was over six years ago. So the company was, you know, about three, four years old. Um, so Monica was doing a lot of, you know, uh, the work back then, but um, I got an email from this lady, Monica, and she was like, Hey, I think you sound great. Can you come in tomorrow and meet with me? And of course I had to go to work. So um, I started looking up what a chargeback is and I couldn't believe it. I had a company, I accepted credit cards and I'd never encountered a chargeback. And then because of the way I was, I was brought up and, uh, you know, with morals and like repercussions for my actions and all, I, I just couldn't believe that a chargeback even existed. I'm like, this, this cannot be allowed. This has to be against the law. Like people can't just, you know, charge something on their credit card and then call their bank and get their money back. Like, so it, it started to like play this role in my head. I'm like, I have to figure out what this is. So now I don't remember applying for the job. This lady Monica wants to meet with me tomorrow. I have to go to work and then, but I'm really interested in the subject. So I skipped work. I went and <laughs> met with Monica. She was running all over the office. Of course, she stayed very busy, sat down with her and then listened to her story, which is unbelievable. Um, you know, she was a merchant. She was encountering this problem called a chargeback. Um, it was a very huge, uh, you know, uh, pain point in their business. They were very successful, but, you know, chargebacks was an issue. So she told me the story of how she got started, her mission uh, with creating Chargebacks 911 brand. And of course, I kind of fell in love with it. Um, you know, Chargebacks 911 was developed out of necessity. Uh, it's meant to, to help merchants uh, and today help financial institutions. And we've just grown into this a massive organization that really all we're trying to do is make the process more efficient, whether that's for the consumer, the issuer, the acquirer, the processor, the merchant, like really this was developed out of necessity. And so when I met with Monica and the company was kind of in uh, its infancy stage, um, I kind of knew right then I'm like, okay, I can get into this. This is crazy. This is a new thing for me. Um, I've always, you know, tried to solve problems. I'm fascinated with that. Uh, this is a design project. So I got into the company um, over six years ago. I started looking at data. I started processing that data. Um, and I started to understand how huge of an issue this actually was. Um, and, and yeah, and then I moved into a client relations uh, role, kind of uh, understood what all that data meant, uh, you know, customer facing concerns. And then now I found myself as VP of Enterprise Engagement talking to some of the largest companies on earth um, and trying to help them solve their problems. So I think uh, 
how I got here was really, really interesting. Uh, but it just goes into the fact that I love to help people. Um, and I think people within our organization can, you know, kind of look to me and, and figure that out as soon as they meet me. I'm always that one that's like, hey, I'm here for you. Just let me know. So um, when I met Monica and I figured out what chargebacks were, I'm like, yeah, I, I'm going to help this lady change the ecosphere of chargebacks. And that's what we're doing. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, when I met Monica Eden Cardone, you know, the, the co-founder, the COO, the, the ownership of, of Chargebacks 911, I, I had that kind of reaction too. I, you know, I, I've met a lot of people. Um, when you do PR, the cool thing about it, you, you learn the profit model for a lot of different companies because if you can't advocate for them effectively in a way that can drive revenue, eventually, you know, they'll find a different way to promote their brand, to promote their product. So you kind of, you kind of have to. And I guess for Chargebacks 911, you're kind of like that too, where you can't help a merchant if you can't figure out what they're all about. And when I met with Monica, it, it was really the passion. Like you can be highly intelligent and there are a lot of really bright people out of the world, like, like people who you meet and they'll actually intimidate you how brilliant they are, but you, you can't really fake passion, like not over, not, not if you're authentic and not over the long haul. And when you genuinely believe in what you're doing and you're passionate about helping people and, and you're in it, not because you're, you know, you're trying to, to, you know, jump off that diving board and jump into a pool of money, but you know, it, you've got a mission here. You've got people are being taken advantage. You've got a good fight. You're, you're, you're being brought in for every noble rationale that you could even think of. And, and unfortunately you don't get an opportunity to meet a lot of people like that. There, there's a critical shortage of, of people like Monica and people who genuinely are wholeheartedly passionate about helping other people and putting other people ahead of their own. And I mean, I have no doubt that Monica would move heaven and hell, move, you know, you, you think of the analogy, if, if it would help a client, if it would be ethical, it would make their life better, then she would want to do it. It would bother her not to do it. And, you know, it, a lot of times people work just hard enough not to get fired and to get paid just enough not to quit. And 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 being around genuinely passionate people, man, I, I got to tell you, someone who's been around Chargebacks 911, not the, not the, the, the longevity that you have, David, I, I've been here maybe maybe a five-year run, I feel better about what I do because of the people that I'm around. Like I feel I can walk around with my head up higher because I know that there are people that are really dedicated to helping other people. It's not like, you know, <laughs> I'm not doing PR magic to make the company look good. The company's making me look good because we got a great product and, and I'm fortunate enough to, to be doing PR for a legitimately great brand. Yeah, it's very inspirational. And I think that's something that, I kind of got held back with at first working for Chargeback Simon One is you have all of these great minds around you and we have such a huge feat ahead of us um, and talking to these massive companies. But at the end of the day, um, everyone's just people. So, I mean, it, it's just dumbed down and simplified to the simple fact of you've got a problem, you don't know how to solve it. And we have tools and solutions that can help. So I try to keep myself uh, humble and grounded uh, to just know that the experience is there. You know, the passion has been put in, the work has been put in. And now fast forward, you know, six plus years later, and we've been doing this for a decade. Now we're on easy town. So we've already developed all the hard things. We've been past that. We've, you know, been through the struggles of what a company would go through as a company and then developed a solution to approach that problem. And then now we're doing this for some of the largest acquirers in the world. We're doing this for some of the largest merchants in the world. So I think the way that Monica has developed this um, is really brilliant because it's, it's really going to change the entire uh, life cycle of a, of a dispute um, and for the better. So it's going to be better for everyone. And I think at the end of the day, that's very inspirational and it takes people, um, you know, to help you get there. And it is very funny to talk about some of the people that we work with is we're very unique individuals. I've never worked for a company like this. I will say that <laughs> um, it is very different than any other company that I've ever worked for. I am used to big corporate America, like, um, you know, it takes nine months to change something. It's going to take 18 board meetings. They're going to have to review it and test it out. Like I've never worked for a company this fast paced. And um, 
also how we find the people we love is, is just crazy to me just because everyone's unique. We have such a diverse team. We're, we're a huge company now, but like the core people that have been here forever could not be more different. So I think she was also very smart leaning on, um, different people and different walks of life and different aspects and learning from them as well. I think, you know, she's grown as a person, um, you know, tremendously. And I think companies need to think about that as well. You know, when you're, when you're starting a company and you're focused on getting that revenue and you've been successful at that, but then you have a problem with, with disputes or you have to do your taxes. I think, um, it's hard for companies to look outside of their little hut or their little, you know, village of people to lean on external help. And that's probably one of the hardest aspects of my job is getting people to understand that sometimes just because you've built your business and just because I've built the house doesn't mean I don't know what's best to protect it or, you know, going through trying to solve it myself. If I wanted an alarm company, I would not build it from scratch to protect my home. I would call a service. You know, they've already been through the trials and, and you know, uh, failures uh, for me. So, um, but it took me getting my house, you know, robbed and broken into in Nashville before I called that, that security company uh, because I thought I was covered. So um, it's very interesting. I think, I think people and other companies can learn from chargebacks. I'm a one of leaning on difference, uh, leaning on, you know, things that you wouldn't, you know, originally think that would help um, is, is very, you know, hard. Yeah, I, I think for a lot of them, the, the challenge that they have, you know, they, they didn't get into what they do because they, they really dig dealing with credit cards. You know, they, they're passionate about painting or building an alarm company or a better dog leash or, or you know, creating the world's best SpaghettiOs or, or you know, like you're, you're driven to, to, you know, to fill a void in the marketplace. You, you've got, the, you know, an idea that you want to develop. You know, how many people go, well, I want to build a better blankety blank. And on top of it, I also want to deal with credit card conflicts and go back and forth with the bank and iron that out. That's what I want to do with my time. And and if you're not inclinated that way, you're not going to take the time to learn. And if, boy, if you don't take the time to learn, I mean, the, the cost of, of, of chargeback and chargeback compliance, I mean, we're we're talking about $150 billion annually when you when you talk about, you know, the loss of revenue and, and trying to get the technology up to, I mean, it, it's a huge burden. And and when you talk about it hurting people, naturally it'll hurt the merchant. They're, they're the number one victim, but, you know, the people out there in the public who are trying to buy product online, if, if you have, if you have an artificial tax on everything you're buying through fraud, you know, if, if I'm selling a product and I'm getting ripped off a particular amount, eventually it'll be reflected in the price point because I can't shoulder that. You're going to have to eat it, not me. And and it's going to deal, it's going to make the inflation go up. It, it's the type of thing where with a chargeback fraud, everyone loses but one guy who's getting away with fraud. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, it, it, it's not like, it happens suddenly for most companies. And I think that's why they find themselves just trying to tackle it themselves is, hey, you know, I created the business and then this thing happened, uh, this chargeback came in and then and then I need to, res- I think I need to respond to it. Um, well, let me call my processor and, and see why they sent this to me. And then of course they call their processor and they're like, okay, well, you know, it's fraud. So you, you lost money. If you don't think it's fraud, you can do a representment. So then they're like, okay, what's well, a representment? And usually they hit our website, but, <laughs> um, but then, so it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's a thing that kind of just trickles in. And then before you know it, your business has grown. Um, you're, you're having to deal with these things more and more. And then you're like, okay, well now what do I do? Uh, I need to hire someone to respond to these things because I don't feel like this is fraud. I don't really know, but I just need to respond to them. So then you, you hire someone to respond to these things. And then before you know it, you have a team of five people, you have a fraud team, you have, you know, a controller and, and it's just gotten a little out of hand. And then you're thinking, okay, well, you know, it's just minus 1% of my business. So I'm still very successful. We're losing a little bit of money over here, but I think what, 
a lot of companies forget about, and I, and I try to you know, shed some light on this when I'm talking to companies, is they forget about all the effort it took to build that house. Like, how much did that block cost? How much did that flooring cost? How much did the, did the kitchen cost that you installed? How much did, the, how much did you invest in acquiring that transaction? It, it's a lot of money. So it's usually about three times the revenue that you've lost to the transaction is what your actual loss is. So, um, you know, convincing companies to take something serious that's in their minds only sub 1% of the revenue uh, is a very tricky thing to approach, but um, you kind of just get distracted with, with throwing people at the problem and dealing with the problem than to think about, okay, what am I actually losing here and how can we solve it? So it's kind of like a snowball effect. Do you think companies just try to, to outgrow it? Like they figure that, you know, maybe I can grow to a point where I won't have to worry about it as much or, or are they intimidated because of the weird language involved in communicating to the bank and, and the form and the filing and, you know, like your, your family was brave enough to be like, Hey, we could go in our own home. We don't need an expert to help. But, but like the language of hammer to nail is pretty one dimensional. The language from handling a credit card complaint to that bank to another bank to the issuer, da, 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 da. boy, I I don't know how you could do that without having a a team of people who really know what they're doing that could really hold you by the hand and guide you along the way. It's not like a hammer and nail kind of thing. You're dealing with a completely different dynamic. Yeah, you are, and I think uh, when companies hire for fraud teams, there com- there's companies that are hiring experienced people. There is no chargebacks school out there. I can tell you that. I mean, chargebacks, I'm a one. We did chargebacks university was, which was really cool to share some of our knowledge. But really, if you think about it, you don't go to school for fraud. I mean, there's no, <laughs> there's no school or college that's going to have a dispute resolution course uh, involved. So you either have to kick the can down the road and take the abuse until you figure it out. And you're still probably not going to be as successful as if you would outsource it, just like with your taxes. You can do them, but the reward is not going to be near as fruitful as if you just, you know, let somebody else have that. So, um, you know, tackling the problem and, and understanding how complex it is, is daunting. You, you really just don't even know how complex it is. When you really get behind the scenes and you look at what happens to a dispute from customer all the way to merchant and back, the merchant just has no idea. So I think that's another reason why um, they're less likely to outsource or lean on uh, other experts for, for you know, some, some help because they just really don't understand the problem and the complexity of it to begin with. Yeah, I don't even think it's a, you know, like quite often they're people, they're, they're not smart enough to know what they're dumb at. But I, I don't I don't think you can really blame the merchant here. I, I you're dealing with a an unfair playing field. I mean, the game's been rigged to the point where if you're a merchant, you're you're at a disadvantage. And it's built that way. It was intentional, it's deliberate. You know, going back to the origin of, of the chargeback law and how it got put in in 1974, you know, the entire idea was to encourage credit card spending. And if a merchant got hurt along the way, well, as long as the national revenue grow, then the politicians will get reelected and everyone will be happy. And if you're going to play a game when the playing field has already been kind of, you know, they're shortcuts, man. It's not e- it's not fair. You, you need to have a team of people around you that can have your back and watch you. And, you know, like, do you remember during the, the Iraq war, Donald Rumsfeld, the, he had that really weird speech where he talked about the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And there are things where you know you know, and there are things you know you don't know. But then there are things you don't know that you don't know. Like, he went on a long diatribe about, you know, the phenomenon of known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And, and I think for chargebacks, from like what I've been able to learn, not doing it the way you have, David, not dealing with the merchant directly, but more from a, you know, reading about it and, and following the literature, boy, it... It's such a specialized bit of information, almost be like a guy trying to go to a hospital and trying to do their own heart transplant. I mean, you know, you can read about it. You can, you know, learn that, okay, that heart would have to go into here, but boy, you're dealing with the technical application and an ability to, to read on the fly, to figure out the banking language, what they're implying, what they really mean, what happened before, uh, what happened in a case like a year ago that had a direct parallel. I mean, it, (laughs) 
you, you can't fight a fight. You can't fight a fight if you don't have ammunition. And way too many merchants get involved in the chargeback problem. They don't have any gunpowder. <laughs> yeah, or they think they do. Um, <laughs> I just was. I was talking to a pretty large merchant a couple weeks ago. And of course I will not name any names, but something stood out to me that they said, and they were like, Hey, I, I actually, um, I've been to issuers and I've talked to these fraud teams and um, they just said that I need to make the casework simple. So it can't be that hard. Right. And they're about to build out <laughs> a chargeback team. And <laughs> it, it just took all I had not to just give him the rundown and explain to him that, woof, you just, it's going to hurt me and pain me <laughs> to see you go through this. But um, I just gave him some references instead. I'm just like, I'm not going to tell him. I'm just going to let somebody else tell him. And I think it's also, um, uh, you know, it is unfair to the merchant. It's it's an unfair play. And, and that's what my passion is driving behind it is, hey, allow me to help you because, you know, there's better ways of doing this. Oh my gosh, get off the treadmill, um, <laughs> start getting in the park and doing your walking because you're really getting nowhere. Uh, if you're responding to chargebacks, you're, you're just responding a lot of the times. You're not actually uncovering a solution for mitigating the risk to begin. Hmm. Do you have any anecdotes that you really like where, you know, you had a client and, and you know, maybe they, they didn't get it, but you were able to have a breakthrough with them or, you know, you had a client that was trying to do it their way and they kept running into a brick wall and you're able to kind of build that roadmap for them and have them walk around the, that brick wall and, and get to a better location. Do you have like a, like a favorite client or, or a moment that just, it really meant a lot to you because it really, you know, for whatever reason, the, the fact that, you know, <laughs> You're helping people follow through with their dream and protect their dream. You know, the dream of having an independent livelihood. Uh, do, do you have any any anecdote about that that you'd like to share? Yeah, one of my coolest um, clients, I guess. Not favorite because I don't pick favorites. They're all they're all <laughs> my little children. Um, Duly noted. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, yeah, a client came to me in a very um, panicked stage. They they were getting, I think. Um, right around 3,500, maybe 4,000 chargebacks a month, which if you just stop and think about that for a second is insane to find yourself in that situation. 1% of, uh, you know, a company's revenue, if you're getting a hundred chargebacks, you'd have to do 10,000 transactions a month. So think about starting a business and thinking about getting 10,000 customers a month. That seems giant, you know, when you're first starting out. So this client, he, he had about 3,500, 4,000 chargebacks a month. So fairly large company. Um, he came to me and he was just really reluctant on everything I was telling him. And I'm like, it's, it's fine. You know, these are, these are the tools and solutions that are available today. And he was like, there's just no way this is real. It just can't be possible. You know, you're, you're, you're a sales guy. Um, you're telling me all this stuff and, and, you know, we can prevent chargebacks. And he's like, I've been doing this for years. And I'm like, well, why did you reach out to me? Then? Like you, you have a problem to solve, right? So let's, let's walk through where do you want to be tomorrow? Not where you're at today. And if half of what I'm saying is true, or maybe even a quarter of what I'm saying is true, will you give it a shot? And uh, this guy, you know, of course, has taken plenty of gambles in his life, <laughs> um, decided to give it a try. And we were able to, um, I think we cut his chargebacks in half and um, we recovered the majority of what was left over. And I think the favorite, my favorite thing of what we do is not just disputing chargebacks, not just, you know, preventing chargebacks. It's uncovering the operational aspects of the business that may be causing the problem to begin with. Um, so, you know, if you were turning off the faucet that you're drowning from every afternoon, but you didn't know someone was sneaking in behind you and turning it back on, then you would never, uh, you know, find a, a way to keep the water from flowing. So we were able to look at some of his operational aspects of his business, focused on his customer service, because that's a huge area of improvement for chargebacks. And, I think we were able to save him around $5 million um, just by uncovering some steps he was taking during refund processes or refund request 
So had really nothing to do with responding to a dispute. It was really just uncovering ways and, and, and uh, activities that were overlooked because it wasn't part of the risk department. It was customer service. So um, wow. that's probably one of my favorite stories. Yeah. And now hey, he loves us. <laughs> Five million in low-hanging fruit laying around. That, that's wild. Like, I mean, imagine the, the, the amount of, imagine how inefficient you are to, to be bleeding 5 million and you're, you're only vaguely aware of it. I mean, I, I really think that's part of the chargeback problem. And, and you talk about, you know, David, that, that, you know, you take a lot of pride in being transparent. I think a problem that a lot of people in the merchant world have, and, and hopefully there are people that are merchants that are tuning in right now and they're looking for help and they want to get better at chargebacks and learn more about it. Uh, we'll give you, we'll give you the information on how you can reach out to David and other people uh, before the end of the podcast, I assure you. But, but for the transparent part of it, I think that a big problem people have with chargebacks is that they're kind of, they're kind of mysterious we, we don't know what they are they're not they're not overt they're not in front of you they're hidden they're buried and you know if you're not looking for them they're you can ignore them and a problem like that you know i mean you, <laughs> we've got the humans have a remarkable ability to to be willfully oblivious to, to problems you know if very few problems are so big that that we can't ignore them you know, and, and I think for a lot of people, you know, you, you don't know what to do. You're intimidated by it. You're great at making a widget, maybe, and you want to do that and you want to go back to it and you don't want to deal with, you know, this credit card and that credit card and that bank over there and that person from a different country. Like, you don't know how to do that. You know how to make your widget. And until until we can figure out a probably a federal solution to the chargeback problem that can be implemented, you know, internationally, if you're a merchant, you're going to be dependent on people who can help you because you're not going to get help through the bank and you're not going to find the help on your own. You need to be smart enough to know what you're dumb at and you need to be wise enough to know that you, you, you're not fighting a fair fight. You're fighting a fight that you're probably not going to win and all the statistical information would point to that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's <laughs> well said. <laughs> Yeah, it's a frightening problem. And David, I'm like completely with you where I didn't, I never thought about chargebacks. I mean, like, you know, I, I watched ESPN. I don't watch the Home Shopping Network. I, you know, like I didn't buying things and, and credit card, just, like it, did, it didn't even factor into my head. And, and if you're unaware of a problem, you can't look out for a problem. And if you're unaware of, of the, the remedy for the problem, you're going to continue to have the problem because you don't know any better. And we're in a really weird period of time where, you know, you had COVID going on, man. We had a an international pandemic that we're, we're limping out of right now, but, you know, we're, we're reeling from it. Everything's changed. You got how many shops have gone under and how many people are now relying on home deliveries for everything that they need for, for medication, for food, for clothing. I mean, our entire world is dependent on card, not present financial transactions. And we don't have a viable way to protect merchants without looking to outside people for help. It, it's a really weird, you know, world that we're in right now. But thank God you got a company out there that can help people. Yeah, it's it's really I mean, what you're talking about is data. I mean, at the end of the day, um, merchants just don't have the data to tackle the problem. And um, I mean, in today's society, data is everything so whether you have an in-house team tackling it on their own um data is going to play a role in that if you outsource to a third party you know data is going to uh, play a role in the result and i think that is our most valuable um tool that we have is our data i mean doing this 10 years now doing it to the level that we do it um for you know financial institutions and uh, merchants alike gives us the power uh, that merchants just don't have. And I think they find themselves, you know, trying to track trends within their own data. Um, but at the end of the day, they can't see past what is normal for them. So, you know, looking outside of the box is going to allow them to find out, okay, well, my area doesn't match what it should for my vertical. And it's a very big eye opener, kind of like the activity for that merchant when when you give yourself access to outside, outside data, you then find out where your problems are and you find out the source of that chargeback. I, I really think you know, understanding where chargebacks are coming from, whether it's from criminal intent, 
you know, friendly fraud or just an error that you've done yourself, that's very hard if you're only working with your own data um, because you're only going to benchmark yourself against your own trends. So um, not just outsourcing everything and not just, you know, giving your chargebacks to chargebacks 911. Really, it's, it's you're opening the door to the rest of the world and everybody else's data, not that we, you know, give you, you know, what Starbucks is doing down the road versus Dunkin' Donut, but we're going to tell you, hey, look, this is not normal. Your data is not normal. And these are the causes of that. And then that works into the source of the problem. You know, you had a car run through your wall and your roof's <laughs> caving in. I think that might be it. Um, but yeah, we can uncover stuff like that. And it's a very cool, a cool thing. Um, and I'm happy to be a part of it. Well, if you have a hole in the roof, you got to get that repaired or you're going to continue to get wet and you're not going to have a whole lot of fun. And, you know, I, I think you're exactly right about the, the transparent problem. Um, and the problem is transparency that if, you know, I know what I know with my company, but I don't know what the other company's going through. I don't know what would be the, the industry norm. I don't know what tactic they might have tried that, that worked or didn't. And if you have the luxury of turning to a company like Chargebacks 911, where you've done over 10 billion online transactions and you're doing over 200 million each month, you're dealing with, with information and data on a volume where you can make you know, an extrapolation of, you know, okay, if we were to try that tactic over here, it should work because it worked over a million times before. And man, you're not gonna have that luxury. You're not gonna have that opportunity. You're not gonna have the ability to put that data together if you're on your own. Yeah, exactly. Now, David, if, if you know, if, if I'm a merchant, I'm I'm, I'm in trouble, or I, I feel that I could do it better. What should I do? Like, I clearly I, I should reach out to you at some point because you're brilliant and smart and a big city guy, like a New York or LA kind of guy. Uh, but uh, until that time, what 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 should I do? Like, is there any anything that I can do on my own before I reach out to you? What what do you recommend? I can tell you a way to never get a charge back ever um, if you're transacting online and you're accepting credit cards, stop, <laughs> which Whoa. is not, it's not the best. That, that might hurt my bottom line. <laughs> no, it's, it's a revenue risk play. And you know, that's what we work with as well. We, we give you the risk aspect of it and it's your choice uh, if you want to implement that. But I would say, you know, focus on customer service. That's a big part of where chargebacks stem from, merchant activity, uh, look at your entire business. Don't just look at your risk department. Um, a lot of these will be consumer behavior related, uh, meaning that it's a valid transaction. You deserve that revenue. And then for whatever reason, whether it's your fault or someone else's fault, uh, they went to their bank to recover the money. Customer service can play a massive role in reducing chargebacks. And of course, there are tools out there. I mean, you know, call me. Uh, you don't have to take our services, but you might as well see what is out there and available that massive corporations have tried to build just for merchants to use. So a good example is Visa. They have a great program now. MasterCard's rolling out their program. Chargebacks 911 have our own relationship. So it's our core focus to bring these solutions that work to merchants. So don't be afraid of what's out there. I'm not going to, you know, tie you to the chair and make you take our services. My job <laughs> is to educate you on <laughs> what is available, look at your situation, be strategic about an approach, and then it's your job to implement that or not. So I'm here to answer any questions that you have, even if you just wanna ping some ideas off of me, if you wanna get to know me, hang out you know, with me when COVID stops and we start traveling again at conventions. Um, I'm not a scary guy, so you know, we can talk about it. <laughs> and, and to be clear, you're not going to handcuff or tie anyone to a chair, right? I got you on the record uh, uh, being really clear that you're not going to do that. Well, some people may be. <laughs> <laughs> I got you now, Mr. Bond. Well, David, if, if uh, people want to reach you, if people want to talk to you, they, they want to learn more about the, about, you know, how you can help them, about how their company can perform better, or they just want to have more information about how the chargeback problem might might work or evolve or how it could be remedied how, how do people reach you yeah you can come through the website you know fill out the demo request we have some great resources on the website it's just informational as well ebooks etc but if you want to reach me um, you can come through the website you can call me 931-622-1944 text call you can email me d.pertle at chargebacks 911 so this d.p is in paul 
I-R-T-L-E at chargebacks with an S 911.com. Um, or you can Skype me. So CB 911 David. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. Well, very cool, David. Really appreciate you joining on the show today, coming on over and sharing your, your information, your wisdom, all the, all the knowledge you've accumulated over the years. Any final words of wisdom you want to share before we depart? Um, do things smarter, not harder. <laughs> Good idea. Good way to go. And on that note, thank you for tuning in to Thought Leadership and the FinTech Revolution. We hope you enjoyed our trek down the fintech wormhole. We'll be back in one month and maybe even before that. Now, go make money, everybody. Bye. And we're out. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Hey, thank you, Jerry. Okay, yeah. I'm late for a call. So just let me know if we need anything else and we'll do it again. No, I think that's it. Great. Very cool, David. Appreciate it, man. Oh, thanks. See ya.